If you would please take out your copies of God's Word this morning as we turn to a fascinating passage of Scripture together. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We have been on a two and a half year journey through the book of Luke. and We are coming down to the last few sermons out of it. It's all been leading up to this, this passage here in Luke chapter 24. We will be reading from verses 13 through 35 today as we hear from Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So listen carefully because this is God's word to us this morning. On that very day, this is the day of resurrection, Jesus from the dead. Two of them, that is disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets Have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is now toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to God and ask his help as we look at this passage together, shall we? Oh, Lord Christ, we do thank you for this passage and for what it teaches to us about the whole rest of the scriptures. I pray that we would learn from it, understand it, and bless you all the more because of it. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If someone were to ask you, what is the Bible? What would you tell them? Or if they were to say, what is the point of the scriptures? Could you answer it in a word or two? There have been a lot of different things that people have described the Bible as being. Some look at the scriptures as a collection of rules, things that we're supposed to follow in order to be good people, to be acceptable to God. It's true that there are rules in the scriptures, and indeed those are good things for our lives, but that's not what the point of the scriptures are, not even close. Some would also say, well, the Bible is a collection of stories, inspirational tellings of things that have happened from the past to inspire you to a better life. The heroic actions of David, the deep, devoted prayers of Daniel, these things are meant to inspire you, to point you on how to live life. Well, it is true that there are lots of stories from the Scriptures, and indeed it is true that we can gain encouragement from these passages in Scripture, but that is not what the Bible is about either. In fact, the Bible is telling one story. From beginning, from Genesis, all the way to Revelation. One story about one person. So you could even say, if someone was to say, what is the Bible about? You could say, I want to change one word of your question. The question you should be asking is, who is the Bible about? Now, how do I know that? How can I make claim to know exactly what the whole point of the scriptures are? Well, the author comes out and tells us. As we know, God is the author of Scripture. Yes, he used 40 different men over 1,500 years to write down these words, but this is all one unified story coming from one ultimate author who is God, Jesus himself. And here he is going to explain to us what the Scriptures are and who they are about. So we're getting to hear from the author himself as to what, or rather who, the Scriptures are about. As you can see in your outline, I have just one point. You would think that would make the sermon shorter, but it doesn't. I'm sorry. But this one point, to emphasize the one unity of what the Scriptures are about, is that Jesus is the revealer of the Scriptures and himself. That's the point that we're going to unpack today. Jesus is the revealer of the Scriptures and himself. So let's see how he works through that. Here we are in Luke 24. Again, to reorient ourselves, as we remember from Resurrection Sunday just this past week, that Jesus has risen from the dead, just as he said. 
And the people remembered his words, something he has been proclaiming for his entire ministry. That day has now come. It's the third day, and he is making all of his appearances on this day to prove that he would be raised on the third day, just as he said. He's already made an appearance to the women, although that's not recorded here in Luke. It's recorded in other Gospels of these appearances. And now he is going to appear to these two on the road to Emmaus. We only know the name of one of the disciples here. This is Cleopas. Apparently he's the only one who speaks and is possibly the source of this story. Luke is the only one to record this particular appearance of Christ. And it begins here on that very day. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. As you know, Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. He had 12 that were in his inner ring, the apostles, as it were. But there were many other people that were following along with him that were also disciples, as the 72 mentioned in other passages of Scripture. That's likely where these two are coming from. But notice that they are walking away from Jerusalem, heading to Emmaus, probably because they lived there. Here... Jerusalem was the center of religious activity. This is where Jesus was, where Jesus was buried. So why are they leaving? Well, they assume there's nothing else to see. Jesus has died. What other hope do we have in Jerusalem? Passover is over. Our hope of the Messiah is dashed. I guess it's time to just go home. Go back to what we know. Back to Emmaus. Nothing else is here for us in Jerusalem. But they're talking about these things, these things that have happened, rehearsing over the ministry of Jesus and how stunned they must have been to see him die. As you've heard me say before, there were about 10 or 12 other Messianic movements right about this same time with Jesus. And the usual MO would be a man would come, would rise up, claim some sort of Messianic authority, He would be killed, and the group would be disbanded. This happened about a dozen other times. And here, these disciples are figuring, here we go again, another Messiah lost. Getting rather used to that, really, because all of Scripture has been waiting for somebody to come and put this thing right. When it was in the garden, we thought it was going to be Cain. Then we thought it was going to be Abel. Then Cain killed Abel, and Cain was cursed, so it's not them. Then we thought maybe it would be Noah, the start of the new Adam. But then he gets drunk, acts in a lewd way, and ends up having to curse his own son. And on and on and on the disappointments have gone. Kings, prophets, priests, all of them have failed in some way. And they assume history is repeating itself yet again. So they're talking about all these things. And as they're talking and discussing together, Jesus comes up and draws near to them. But they can't recognize him. Why? Here, if you remember from your English composition days, what we see here is their eyes were kept from recognizing. This puts it in the passive, something that is happening to them. That's the difference between planting something and having been planted something that happens to them. Something has happened to their eyes. They have been kept from seeing. In Scripture, when we see this sort of a thing, we call it the divine passive. The Lord is the one who is holding back their eyes to keep them from seeing. 
At least for now. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, their eyes have been kept from recognizing Jesus. So he comes up to them and begins this conversation, asking them, what are they talking about? And then they stop and stand still looking sad. You could imagine why they would be sad. Here they thought that Israel was going to be redeemed. Israel was going to get to throw off the Romans. And finally, getting to extend from sea to shining sea, as the prophets had foretold. But here they've been disappointed again. And you can hear one of them, Cleopas, is answering Jesus. You can almost hear the bite in his voice as he addresses this person and saying, Are you the only person that hasn't been paying attention? How can you not be aware that this is happening? It is trending everywhere, all over Jerusalem, that Jesus has died. This has been the biggest moment in all of history. How are you, of all people, not seeing it? The rest of us get to have a laugh at Cleopas' expense because we know this is the only one who knows what's happened in Jerusalem and has known the significance of it. But they don't see Jesus at this moment. And so Jesus draws them out a little bit further. What things are you supposed to be talking about? Gets Cleopas' take asking this question, and this is very helpful because we get a view into Cleopas' mind as to what does he think has happened. And you'll notice that he has some of the facts, but not all of them. And he begins to rehearse the things that he knows about Jesus. It says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. He has the same perspective that pretty much everybody else does. Another one. A long line of prophets who was able to do miraculous things. Surely one of the greatest prophets, no doubt, he's done more miracles than Elijah could have ever dreamed of doing. But that's what they see him as a prophet. Notice what they used to think of him, though. As we go on here and they rehearse how it's the chief priests and the rulers who have delivered him up to be condemned to death, placing the blame squarely on those that have delivered him up to, to death. It's not the Romans, it's his own people. And then 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they had some sort of messianic expectations of him. But he's dead. A dead guy cannot help you throw off a government, especially when that government is the one that's killed you. Can't even get the chief priests and the scribes to cooperate. So what hope do we have that he's going to be the Messiah? He's dead. That's the big test. He failed it. He's just a prophet then. Shows you the importance of the resurrection, doesn't it? They don't see what's happened. And notice, they are making the same mistake in not remembering Jesus' words either. I love it. As he continues in verse 21, Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. You can almost say, it's like, do you hear yourself, Cleopas? What has Jesus been telling you for years? That the Son of Man would be delivered over, crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. Just like Jonah. That's why we had Jonah, so that you would know this was three days. But they don't see it. And even the testimony, eyewitness testimony, of the female disciples who have been with them just as long as they've been with Jesus. Everyone's been following along together. 
Even some of the male disciples have gone out. Some of our company, it mentions, as we remember from last week, Peter was the one mentioned out of Luke that goes and checks on, on, on the tomb. John, in his gospel, includes himself as well. It is Peter and John that go. So there's your, those who have gone to check it out. But then it says, but him they did not see. Won't believe it unless we see it. Come on, Cleopas, he's right there. Shows you that vision isn't everything. You can have Jesus himself standing in front of you. And unless he opens your eyes, you won't see him. That's what happens here. And then Jesus goes on to criticize them in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the... Now, if I was to stop there, what would you think he was going to say? Why don't you believe the disciples that just came back from the tomb? They just saw it was empty. Why didn't you believe the women? Why didn't you believe Peter and John? But he doesn't say that. He says, why didn't you believe all that the prophets have spoken? Jesus is saying, it's not just me that's been saying I've been raised from, for three days. It's not just the ladies that are telling you that I have risen. The whole of the revelation of the Old Testament has been pointing that this would happen. You can hear the same sort of critique that Jesus had for the Pharisees when they would come up and challenge him about something. It's like, have you not read the scriptures? It's all here. And he goes on to explain. And he goes, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now you would think, Luke, why didn't you tell us any more than that? Couldn't you let us in a little bit on what that sermon was about? Wouldn't you have liked to hear what Jesus was going to say there? Well, probably what's happening, as commentators have pointed out, is he probably, all those verses that we see expounded for us in the book of Acts was probably what Jesus was mentioning out of. Deuteronomy 18, Psalm 110, and some other places like that. He encourages you to go into the, to go into the sequel. To find out the explanation of how all those things worked. And the disciples are always going back to the Old Testament to pull out what it is that God was doing in these passages. This was not a fluke. This didn't just happen to work out. This was the plan from the beginning. That's what we see in Genesis 3. That's why we read that passage today. Jesus' heel was bruised. He did die on a cross. But the head of the serpent was crushed. That's the point. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Interestingly enough, if you also go into Psalm 110, there is another picture of that. But it's a little hidden in its translation. Psalm 110, verse 6. It's listening to a fantastic podcast series that I would commend to you. Uh, it's called, uh, called Bible Talk. Pointed this out to me. It's really just going through the scriptures. Sorry, podcast listeners, I didn't mean to pick you up there. Slammed them down in my Bible. Sorry, Dad. Psalm 110. 
here in verse 6. Oh, let me back up verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And you'll notice, if you're reading in the ESV, there's a little number next to that word, chiefs. If you look down at the bottom, verse 4 says, or the head. Reference the serpent. This is the passage that Psalm 110 is referenced more often than almost any other psalm in Acts, pointing to Jesus. There it is. Genesis chapter 3. Be one that will crush the head of the snake. Here it is again. Psalm 110. We'll crush the head, referring to the serpent. Back again. Luke 24. All of this is pointing to Jesus. And as we'll see next week, Jesus includes the Psalms as well as the law and the prophets. Law of Moses being the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets is the rest and the writings, Psalms and onward. All of it pointing to Jesus. So why does this matter? Why do we make this point about the scriptures? This is to hold up the importance of who Jesus is. We think of somebody as really important if they have their own published biography about them. You walk into Barnes & Noble and you see the line of biographies. You must assume these people have some measure of importance because they managed to convince a publisher to talk about their lives and, and that they're worth reading. Imagine being the subject of the Bible. God has written about this person, about himself, about his son. That person's worth knowing about, don't you think? It's the point of the scriptures. And as we've learned, it's not important enough to just have facts about Jesus. A few things here and there picked out about who Jesus is. You need to know the whole picture. And it's not just knowing stuff. It's having a relationship with him. Here these disciples Knew the facts about Jesus, having Jesus tell about who he is, but him they did not see. Their eyes were held back. Until their eyes are open, they can't have that relationship. There is a difference between knowledge about something and belief in something. Knowing about George Washington versus being personal friends with him. A very different thing. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And again, to point out also the importance of the Old Testament. Too often we pass over the Old Testament as background reading, or as even one famous preacher said, to unhitch the Old Testament from our lives. That's not Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament. He clearly thinks this is rather important. This is the Scriptures. We can't just pass over them. Because the New Testament's always drawing back to the Old showing how the foundation from the old provides the understanding for the new. We got to work through that in Sunday school this morning. So we looked through that. That's what this is about. That's why it's important for us to know the scriptures, because they point to who Jesus is. So now we continue. Here, Jesus has been explaining the scriptures and how they point to himself And now we're going to see how Jesus reveals himself as he walks with them. Verse 28. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. It's important to point out here, as other commentators have, that when we think of evening, we're thinking like 5, 6 p.m., or the sun's pretty low in certain parts of the time, times of the year. It's going to be dark in like an hour or two. That's how we typically think of evening. For them, evening would have been just after noon. So maybe two, three o'clock. So there's still plenty of time, uh, plenty of daylight left. The reason why this is important is because they're about to make another seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem. It also points out their insistence to want to know more about Jesus. Trying to make an argument that there's no time to get to the next village. I mean, it's already two o'clock. Might as well turn in and have a meal with us. They desperately want to know more of what Jesus is saying. So he consents to come in and stay with them. Interesting, as one commentator pointed out, same wording that we see in Revelation chapter 3 of Jesus saying, if you will, if, uh, standing, standing at the door and knocking, and I will come and sup with them. Same point there in Revelation 3. All scripture pointing to Christ. And then in verse 30, he was at the table with them, and then he took the bread. Now that's odd. In our culture, that's not something that we, that we might pass over quickly. But here, these guys were likely coming back to their own home, likely having Jesus in their own house. And it was the host's job to present the bread, not the guest. So the fact that Jesus reaches over and grabs the bread is a little bit of a breakage of social custom. So he takes the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, we're having communion today. And as much as I would love for this to be about the Lord's Supper, it's not. What this is referring to here, this is something, if it was pointing to the Lord's Supper and it was pointing to the last Passover, that point would have been lost on Cleopas and his companion. It was only the 12 that got to see that. Also, Jesus is using different, or or Luke is using different words here for how he is approaching the bread. When it was in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave thanks for the bread. Eucharistos, which is why sometimes it's referred to as the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper. But it's not. It's saying that he has blessed the bread. There's also no wine present, so it would only be half of the Lord's Supper. So it's not referring to that. But what it is referring to is this is the same sort of language that we see in Matthew 14, 19, when Jesus blesses the bread to feed the 5,000 callback to his miracles and the way that he has provided for his people, which itself is a reference back to Exodus with the giving of the bread from heaven. All of these connections going round and round. Then verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Was it the breaking of bread? I doubt it. Just seeing Jesus wasn't enough. He would have looked the same. But here, only now do they see Jesus. And then just as soon as they recognize him, verse 31, and he vanished from their sight. Why? This is something that has really confused me as I look into the scriptures, is why does Jesus wait until now, they finally get to enjoy some vision, and then poof, he's gone. I didn't know what to say about that. 
Well, the commentaries were really helpful. And they had pointed out that this shows Jesus is able to minister anywhere. As we'll see later on in this passage, when they come back to the disciples, the disciples answer to him already, yes, Jesus has indeed already risen because he just appeared to Simon. So here he popped away here in Emmaus and popped back up in Jerusalem to meet with Peter. Jesus is able to minister anywhere. He's not constrained by how fast and how far you can walk as it used to be. Jesus is now able to minister anywhere. And that's the point here. Also shows you, once you have faith in Christ, vision's not necessary. In John, I think it's John 20, when Jesus appears to Thomas, and Thomas finally believes, because he has seen Jesus now, and Jesus says, Blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's his point. Vision isn't necessary. Physical conversation back and forth isn't necessary. It's Christ's work in your heart. Now, how does Christ work through the heart? What has he just been unfolding for the last several miles? The scriptures. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. It's always been the pattern. Jesus doesn't walk up to them and give them a headbutt and a data download. He unfolds to them the scriptures. What they should have been reading to see the prophets. It's how he works today. He works through us unfolding what the scriptures say to the people. And then Christ is the one who opens their eyes. As we see in Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. He is the one that makes someone see. And here we can see what sort of effect does having your eyes opened. Well, look here. He's vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? Something's happening here. And then verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They leave home again. They go back to Jerusalem. Why? There's something to do in Jerusalem now. There's no going back to the way things were. Jesus is alive. We've got things to do. Yes, we'll go back to Jerusalem. Aren't they killing you over there? Yes, we have. Yes, they are. But we've got a mission from God now. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. We got to tell people. That's what they do. And they go back to the disciples, probably thinking that they have got some earth shattering news for them. And they find out the disciples already know. Look here in verse 34. It's a little confusing as to who is talking, whether it would be the two that were on the road to Emmaus or whether it's the disciples that are saying uh, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. But looking at the language, that is what's happening here. It's the, the. Now, the now 11 disciples are telling these two, Jesus has appeared to us as well. He's appeared to Simon. The Lord is risen indeed. Note the change from the prophet, huh? It's now no longer Jesus of Nazareth, a great prophet. It is now the Lord God. Our Lord and our God. 
and then they tell what's happened to them and how he was known to them, the breaking of bread, how they had seen Jesus finally. So now why does all this matter? Why is it important that Luke would tell us that Jesus is the point of all the scriptures and then makes this point about restricting and then unrestricting their vision? Well, this is a reminder to us that belief in Christ is a miracle of the soul. This isn't something that just happens by acquiring a certain amount of knowledge or hearing words laid out in a certain order that's always going to result in this. Belief in Christ is not the result of some sort of magical incantation that you say over somebody else. This is Christ revealing himself to them. This can seem scary. It's like, what do you mean? You mean I don't have the power to convert people? Nope, you don't. You still have the responsibility to carry the gospel to them. But it is not within your power to reach into a heart and change it. Or to open up somebody's eyes to see Jesus. So this should actually be a tremendous comfort to us. Because now you should be emboldened to go and give the gospel to people that you think will never come to Jesus. Why? Because it's not your job to convert them. It's not your job to figure out how to be clever. It's your job to present the word of God to them and let Christ do his work. So go to the hardest cases you can find. Because that's Jesus' work. Don't give up on cases that seem like really, really hard people to crack. Folks you've been praying for for decades. Don't give up on them. Give them the gospel. Pray for their souls. And then go to sleep. Because they're in Jesus' hands. Whose other hands would you rather them be in? You think you love them more than Jesus does? You think you know how to reach their heart better than Jesus does? course not. They're in Christ's hands. It will make a difference when Christ opens their eyes. Finally, for those of us who are here, why does this matter? When you see Christ, there's going to be a change. If you say, yeah, I have a relationship with Christ, but my life doesn't look any different than the time is before I knew Christ. You still walk into Emmaus? Still walking away from what God has told you to do? Maybe you haven't seen Jesus yet. I'd love to introduce you to him. Don't keep walking towards that. Belief is going to make a difference for you. So what's our takeaway from this whole passage? Remember nothing else. Remember this. Jesus is the point of the Bible, and therefore the universe. So commit your life to him. See him. You say, how do I get to see him? I thought this was up to Jesus. Jesus has said that he won't cast anybody who comes to him. So if you say, I need to come to him, congratulations, your eyes are opening. Jesus is working on you. So come and he will in no wise cast you out. One more thing to point out. When it says here that their eyes were opened, it's the same words that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve took a bite of the apple, their eyes were opened. But it was opened to a world of sin. 
It was opened to death. It was opened to no hope at all. But now, when the disciples' eyes are opened, taking of bread rather than fruit, the word, the bread of life, their eyes are opened to hope. Their eyes are opened to salvation. Our eyes can see sin really clearly. But Jesus offers you a vision of himself. Come, take of it, enjoy it, and then return to Jerusalem. Go to what Jesus has called you to do. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage, this marvelous unfolding of your truth. And I ask that you would help us to see it rightly, dedicate ourselves not to an idea, not to a list of propositions, but to a person, Jesus Christ. Oh, may this be the call of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen.